Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're in the middle of a, of a series uh, answering tough questions from the Old Testament, and uh, so many reasons to be doing a series like this. Uh, of course, many of the uh, attacks against our faith right now and against the Bible are based on difficult passages in the Old Testament. People say uh, the, old, the God of the Old Testament encourages slavery and genocide and he hates women and all these sorts of things. So we've been answering tough questions, okay? Because there's attacks from the outside, but it's not just attacks from the outside. Uh, for many of us, it's attacks from the inside. It's not just the guy at work or the, your brother-in-law or, or so, one of your friends who doesn't believe in the Lord who's attacking it. Uh, it's as we read our Bibles for our devotions and more and more I'm finding that with, within our own church, uh, people have real questions, deep questions, and how can God be good? And they look at a passage like this, and, and they say, well, how, what, what does this mean? And so we're answering questions, not just so that we can answer people from the outside, we're also answering these questions so that we can have confidence when we read the Bible that God is good. And, uh, and so I've been getting lots of really good questions from people in the church. Again, this last week, uh, some really uh, amazing questions, people asking good questions, and I love that. And today we're going to tackle the topic of, of does God hate women, okay? And uh, just to start it off, for any of the women leave, the answer is no, he doesn't. And I'll, I'll prove that to you uh, over the course of this message. But some of the common accusations made about the Bible's treatment of women, if you go online, you'll find all kinds of stuff. But uh, one of the accusations, common accusations you'll see is that the Old Testament punishes rape victims, and they, they use a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 22, which we'll look at this morning. Another one is that the Old Testament encourages fathers to sell their daughters as slaves, from a passage in Exodus chapter 21, which we'll also look at this morning. And another one is that the Old Testament encourages polygamy, and there's many passages that they cite there. And so people look at the Old Testament, they read through it, but again, it's not just people on the outside. I, I was talking to a, a gentleman yesterday between services. He said, uh, just uh, Friday morning, I think it was over breakfast or something, him and his wife, after their devotions, had been talking about exactly one of these passages, Exodus 21, that we'll be talking about uh, this morning. And they had been discussing with each other. These are good people. And they're, but they were discussing with each other, why would this be in there? What does it mean? Right? And so we're answering these questions so that we can have that confidence. And, you know, one of the, the passages that came to my mind yesterday uh, while I was preaching was in Matthew, Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, we need the Bible. We need God's word. It's soul food. But increasingly, I'm finding that many Christians are avoiding the Old Testament because they just don't get it. And so much of it in there, they, they read it and they go, how is this soul food? This is disturbing. And so a big part of this message series, if, if you want to know one of the practical applications that I want to come out of today's message, not only that women would be built up, obviously, but also that we would all be encouraged to go home and actually get into the Old Testament. When Jesus said man lives by, not, does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he wasn't even talking about the New Testament. Obviously, that includes the New Testament, but the New Testament didn't exist then. He was talking about the Old Testament, and we still need it today. And today's message is to help you get back into the Old Testament and be encouraged to read it and to be able to feed on it. Amen? So I want to pray, and then we'll uh, talk about does the Bible, does the Old Testament encourage dads to sell their daughters as slaves, all right? Father... We come to you this morning, and we love you, and, uh, and we want to honor you, and we want to lift up the name of your son, Jesus. And Father, I want out of this series and out of this message today, I want people to be encouraged to get into their Old Testaments and to read it and to feed on your word because we need your word for spiritual life. 
Father, I pray that you would continue to grow us in confidence that you are good. And Lord, I pray that you would also grow us in confidence that when we go to work and when we go to school and when we go to our family gatherings, that we have reasonable, gracious, loving answers. When people attack the faith and when people attack your word, that we can actually stand up and say, hey, that's not at all what it means. You're taking that out of context. We can explain to people and have reasons for what we believe. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us confident, that you would make us more loving, and that you would make us more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's start with Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 to 11. I, I read you, well, I told you last week, one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, and, and we'll start off with another disturbing one here. Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 7 to 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, and I mean, it's just like, you read that and you go, what on earth are we going to do with that, right? Like, is the Bible actually encouraging dads like me? I got four kids, two of them are daughters. Is it actually encouraging dads to sell their daughters as, as slaves? It's terrible, right? She shall not go out as the male slaves do. Well, of course not. Of course, God, the God of the Old Testament wouldn't treat females the same as males, right? That's what people think. That's what some of us might even wonder. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. I'll read you two more verses. If he takes another wife to himself. So we'll talk about polygamy later, but of course throughout the Old Testament, it sure seems like God condones polygamy, which is a terrible uh, you know, uh, kind of thing in society for women. Um, he shall not dis diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three, three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And so again, you, you take this passage out and you put it on, under the, 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 the light and you look at it in our current modern day society and it looks awful. It looks like there's no way to defend this. But again, as we looked at last week and we've been, as we've been looking throughout this series, one of the things, I'm not just trying to answer for you every question in the Old Testament. We never have enough time to answer every single one. One of the things throughout this series I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you guys tools so when you read these things, you can begin to, to learn for yourself how to find the answers. And one of the things I keep telling you is you can't look at some of these passages in the light of modern-day society here in Canada in 2017. It was written in a vastly different context more than 3,000 years ago. Okay, and so one of the things we dealt with the topic of slavery uh, a number of weeks ago in this uh, series, and one of, the, one of the things I told you in that message was, just to do a quick review, is that first of all, when we read the word slavery in the Old Testament, we, uh, it actually shouldn't even be the same word. Because what the, what the Old Testament means by the word slavery and what we think of it as in our context are two radically different things. Like, I'm talking radically different things, okay? Slavery, and just a quick review of that message, just very brief. Uh, slavery in the Old Testament was voluntary, okay? Uh, it was voluntary. Slaves had to be set free after seven years. Any slave who was mistreated had to automatically be set free. And any slave who didn't want to be a slave could run away and the law automatically made them free, Okay? Really, the word slavery in the Old Testament, when it's used in Old Testament Israel, don't think of it as we think of the word today. You should actually think of indentured servitude. And what we talked about is how in a land-based economy in the Middle East, that's what it was, it was a land-based economy in the Middle East there 3,000 years ago, uh, there was not an abundance of food. It wasn't an economy like today where there's an abundance. There's more than enough of food and clothing and shelter to go around for all the people who live in Canada. And, we live, and, and most people don't make their living by what they can farm out of their own land. Like in third world countries where people have to 
basically what they eat is what they can grow themselves. It's, we don't have an economy like that in modern-day Canada, so we don't understand some of these things. But in Old Testament Israel, what do you do in a land-based uh, primitive economy like this when a family goes into poverty or can't pay their debts? Well, what you would have is indentured servitude, what the Old Testament calls slavery, but it's nothing like what we think of when we think of slavery today, is that people would sell themselves for six years to give their labor to another person. That person, then their debts would be wiped out, and that person would be responsible for caring for you and your family while you gave them your labor. It's not at all like slavery like we think of today, all right? So that's the first thing, is remember, when you read in the Old Testament and you read the word slavery, remind yourself, this is not at all what our context and our culture means when we think of the word slavery. The second thing you need to understand is in the context of this passage, really the word there, slave, is completely wrong. It's the Hebrew word, amah, and what it's talking about here is this girl is being sold to be somebody's wife, not a slave, okay? Now, even there, that doesn't do a lot for a lot of you women. You're going, What? That doesn't sound much better. So she's getting sold. So now a, a dad is selling his daughter to be married to someone, okay? But that's the first step to understanding this passage is she's not being sold. This is not, for, first of all, sex slavery, which is a horrible thing that goes on in today's world. That was never, uh, never allowed in Old Testament Israel, okay? But she is being sold to be a wife. You go, now what kind of a God would have set up a system where dads would sell their, their daughters to be someone else's wives, okay? Because we don't understand that today. Okay? And again, in the context of how our society operates today, this would be a bad law. It would. But when you realize how that society worked, I'll show you, it's actually a good law. So recall land-based economy. Okay? Now, second thing you need to, to remember about that time period is women couldn't own land. Okay? So this is a problem. Remember, in today's economy, uh, you ladies can get a job, you can save up money, you can buy a house just like a man can, and so a woman doesn't have to be married to care for herself in today's society. And that's a good thing, okay? But you have to realize is in ancient Middle Eastern culture, it wasn't like that. A woman had to be married or she could not provide for herself because she couldn't own land. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Ruth. Okay? Read the book of Ruth to see what it's like to be a woman in an ancient Middle Eastern culture when your husband dies. See, you know the, the, the story basically is Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, right? Naomi's husband dies, and then Naomi's sons die. So now Ruth, the daughter-in-law, and Naomi, the mother-in-law, are husbandless. The two of them together, these two women, they move back to the land of Israel. They have no way of caring for themselves. In fact, a woman without a husband in days like that could very easily starve. Because the only way they can survive is to pick up what gets left over when someone harvests their crops. They go in and pick up the leftovers. And in the book of Ruth, if it isn't for Boaz and his generosity, and then eventually he marries Ruth, there's no way Ruth and Naomi can, can get by. Okay? So as a result of a culture like this, of a situation like this, uh, it was very different for dads then than it is now, is because your daughter needed to get married in order to be provided for long term, uh, dad's biggest goal, if you had a daughter, was to get that daughter married off, okay? <laughs> very, very different than today, where me and my brothers have a pact already, what we're going to do to any boy who comes knocking too early on any of my nieces or my daughter's uh, doors, okay? In fact, I've jokingly told Joy, she's turning 12 this year, that the first time she brings a boy over, I'm, I want to buy a t-shirt that says, I'm not afraid of going to prison a second time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, In our culture, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good shirt. I didn't make it up. I found it online, but 
I'm, I'm going to buy it. Um, so in our culture, it's more about beating back the boys and protecting our girls, right? In that culture, because again, you say, well, why couldn't she just live with her dad? Well, she could live with her dad, but once her dad dies, if she's not married off, there's no one to care for her. So a dad's goal was to find a good husband for his daughter and marry her off. That was the goal. Totally different than today. Again, a law like this in today's society wouldn't be a good law. And you say, I don't, I don't like that system. Well, that's the thing. The Bible wasn't written to us in our time period. It was written in that time period 3,000 years ago. At least this part of the Bible was. Okay? That's really important to understand. So now you mix into this whole equation. First of all, women can't care for themselves, and so they need to be married off. And then you mix into this equation. Now you have people in this economy who are very poor, and you can see how dads could get to this place now where they, they can't take care of their daughters, they can't take care of their family, and they would look for a good situation where, where they could sell off their daughter to a good husband who would then pay the family some money and now also take care of the daughter, Okay. This is not at all a passage encouraging dads to sell their daughters into slavery like how we understand slavery today. This is a passage written within a broken system. And remember, by the way, can we just stop for a moment? Who broke the system? Was it God that thought up, you know what? I like poverty and I like death and I like girls, you know, women not being able to take care of themselves. So I'm, no, that, that's not how it happened. When he created the, the earth in the Garden of Eden, there was no sin and there was no death. There was none of this brokenness, okay? But because we sinned, people sinned, the system got broken. This isn't God condoning the broken system. This is God in his mercy working within a broken system to mitigate evil and protect women within it, okay? And that's really important to understand the system is not ideal, it's broken, but God works within the system. So actually, in the end, this law has the effect within the broken system of making protections. People read this, this law and they go, look, God hates women, but actually within this broken system, there's four protections in this law that God put there to protect women within this system. Okay? And I'll just show them all to you. Uh, verse 8, uh, protection number one, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So the first protection is uh, a man, so a, a desperate father or whatever sells his daughter to be married to a man who he thinks is a good man. And this man then turns around and wants to sell her on a foreign slave market so he can make money. And this law says, first of all, absolutely not. There is no reselling this woman on a, on an ex, on a more expensive foreign slave market. Isn't that a good protection? Okay? Essentially, what this law would have had the effect of doing is it would have forced men that if they bought a, a young woman like this to marry, they actually had to have wanted to marry her because they weren't allowed to turn around and do all kinds of buying and selling. They, they, they couldn't turn the woman into, to, uh, to, you know, sort of like cattle to, to buy and sell. They had to basically want to marry her in order to do this. Okay? That's protection number one. Protection number two, verse nine. If he designates her for his son, so perhaps an older man would, would, would pay for a, a young woman like this to, to marry, but do it because of his son. He wanted to arrange a good marriage for his son. So if he designated, again, to our modern ears, it just, it's, it's kind of icky. We don't, because our society doesn't work this way. And of course, it's good that our society doesn't work like this. The Bible isn't tell, telling us to make our society work like this. This is God giving a law in a society that was like this, Okay. But if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. Is that not an amazing law? So if he pays money for a, for a young woman to be married, he can't treat her for the rest of his life as a servant or a slave. 
he literally, by law, by God's law, has to now treat her like blood. He has to treat her as family. That's actually an amazing law in a broken system like this. Protection number three, if he takes another wife to himself, and we'll touch on polygamy yet in this, in this message, and I'll show you that God hates polygamy, but if he takes another wife to himself, this is not God condoning polygamy. This is God in a broken system where he knows it's going to happen. This is God making a law to protect women where it was going to happen, okay? So if he takes another wife to himself, this man who bought the, the young woman, he shall not diminish the first woman's food or clothing or her marital rights. Again, another great protection. The protection is, once you've paid for a woman like this, is, is this is a protection against her being discarded and neglected later on. And then the fourth protection is this, the last verse, is if he does not do these three things for her, he, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, the woman can go free. If the guy does not obey the first three laws, then the woman can go home and the money that the man paid to the father doesn't get paid back. No money goes back. He's lost his money now. He made that payment. He didn't, he didn't obey the law now. This woman wasn't treated fairly or properly. She can go home to her dad, and the family gets to keep the money. All right? Now, again, the fact that God made these laws is not a, uh, condoning what's happening. It's God protecting women. And we have laws like this today. We have laws like this today that, that deal with unideal, broken situations but we have to make laws for those situations. For example, we have lots of laws like this. We have laws, for example, in order to protect innocent people against potential abuses by the police or the criminal justice system or whatever, we have laws that say, you know, you can't go and search a person's house so, uh, unless you get a warrant, unless you do, you know, X, 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 and X, you know, whatever, X, Y, and Z, um, you can't go into that house. So a police officer can be fully confident that this person's house here, this person is a drug lord and a murderer, but that police officer cannot go in there and stop what they're doing or search the house until he first gets a warrant. Now, 3,000 years from now, someone might go back and look at our laws in Canada and say, boy, those Canadians, they really loved their drug lords, didn't they? Like, look at all these laws they have protecting drug lords and serial killers and stuff like this, like all these different things they had to do. And we would say to them, absolutely not. We don't love drug lords and serial killers, these laws were put in place because people are broken and it's a broken system and we have to protect innocent people from potential abuses. That's why we have these laws. Same with these laws. It's not God condoning some of the stuff that's going on. It's God protecting people within a system that's already broken. And that is hugely, hugely important for us to pay attention to. And I'll, I'll show you this in one more example and then we'll look at some of the bigger storyline of what the Bible says about, about women. But I'll show you one more example um, because this is true of pretty much any law you look at in the Old Testament where it seems to treat women harshly, you'll find in every case that actually it's a case of a culture treating the women harshly and then God making a law to protect the women within that culture. And the same is, is certainly true of, of uh, rape victims. And we'll just spend a couple minutes here. Deuteronomy chapter 22 is a common one that people outside of Christianity love to attack Christianity with. They say the Old Testament punishes rape victims. And again, it's just another example of the Old Testament hates women and, and, and loves men. But the exact opposite is true. And so we'll read this. Deuteronomy chapter 22, starting in verse 25. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, that's engaged to be married, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Now I'll just say this right now. When you go online, they never quote this first part. They always, they always quote verse 28 and they leave the first, two, the first couple of verses of this passage because this doesn't match up with the narrative that the Old Testament hates women, okay? They don't read the first part, but I want you to notice in this first part who gets punished and who doesn't. 
It's the man, it's the rapist who gets punished, it's not the woman, okay? In fact, if an Old Testament Israelite was fast-forwarded in time 3,000 years to today's uh, time period and looked at our laws about rape, he would think that we went easy on the rapist, okay? Because in the Old Testament, God said, this is something I will not tolerate, and the rapist dies, okay? Um, we go to verse 26, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. Okay? Very, very important. People are throwing out the Old Testament is, 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 is hard on the rape victims. I want you to see what's at, what the Old Testament actually says. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. By the way, contrast the Old Testament with many Muslim countries today uh, where victims of sexual assault women are often assumed to be guilty and the man is assumed to be innocent and often the woman is punished instead of the man. It's just brutal. But here we see it's the opposite in the Old Testament. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her, okay? Now we'll go to the next verse, and it's the next verse that, that everybody loves to quote and that gives people fits about the Old Testament. The first two passages I read you here were about what happens if an engaged woman or a married woman is attacked, okay? The next passage has to do with what happens if a single woman is attacked, all right? And to our modern eyes, it kind of looks bizarre and unfair, okay? But let's read it, and let's talk about what's going on there. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, so a single woman, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. And this is the part people love to have a field day with. They say, what kind of a law is this? So now this man doesn't get punished. Well, he has to pay a fine, and 50 shekels of silver was a big fine. He has to pay a big fine, but other than that, this is bizarre. Now you add cruelty to this woman. Now she's been assaulted, and now you make her marry the one who assaulted her. It just seems bizarre, especially after we just read the other passages. Why is, is the man who attacks an engaged woman or a married woman punished with death, but a man who attacks a single woman, he, get, he marries her? And it just seems to our modern ears like this is just a, an example of the Old Testament hating women. Well, of course, we know from the previous couple of passages, if we read the thing in its context, we know that something else must be going on here because clearly God was very harsh on the rapists in these situations. So why with a single woman is it different, right? Well, the answer is, again, this is not 2017 modern-day Canada. This is 3,000-plus years ago uh, Middle e ancient Middle East, okay? And remember what I just talked to you about, about landowning and daughters, okay? Remember that a woman who was not married could not care for herself, okay? She needed to be married. Now, add into that, there's a second problem now. Once a woman had been assaulted, and this isn't because God condoned this. This is just how, how the culture worked, is that no other man would have wanted to marry her. So now we have a problem. This young woman has been assaulted. It's no fault of her own, but because of this assault now, nobody else is going to marry her. She's now, her life is in essence completely ruined. She's not just been humiliated. Her life is ruined, okay? So what are you going to do in a situation like that? In fact, it's so bad. If you don't believe me, 2 Samuel chapter 13 has a very sordid story of King David's kids where exactly this happens. And one of David's sons, Amnon, assaults one of David's daughters, Tamar, and what's so sad about the story, if you read it, is at the end of the assault, Tamar actually begs Amnon to marry her now. That's just sad. It's, how, it's, it's just how the society functioned. The Bible doesn't condone it. That's how the society functioned, is that now your life is ruined because nobody else will marry you. You have no one to care for you. So 
when you look at this law, to us in 2017 looks bizarre. But what this law really is, is it's not God going easy on the rapist. It's God forcing this criminal, this man, to take lifelong responsibility for his actions. You just did this to this woman. Like, we could put you to death like we did if you would have done it to a married woman. But the only thing is that would condemn this woman because nobody else is going to marry her. So instead, what we're going to do is this. You're going to stay alive, and you're going to have to marry her so that you can take care of her for the rest of her life. And notice, he, she may not divorce her all his days. Other guys were allowed to divorce their wives if she was unfaithful or different things happened, this and that. In this situation, the man was never, it didn't matter how bad, if his wife just went crazy on him and was, was being unfaithful to him and doing all sorts of stuff. No, no, no. It's your fault. You started this thing, you're married to her, and we'll take care of her for life. Okay? Now, of course, there's still a part of us that goes, yeah, but he's just a bad guy. What if she doesn't want to marry him? The thing you have to understand with this law is the forcing marriage does not go two ways. It goes one way. The point of this law was to force the man to take responsibility for his actions. It was not to force the woman into a marriage she didn't want. If the woman and her father didn't want to marry this man who had assaulted her, they didn't have to, and I'll prove it to you. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 16 to 17 talks about a very similar situation, and I want to note, you to note what God puts into the law. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And the same would have held true in the case of assault. If the father and his daughter say, there's no way, that guy is just, he's an awful guy, and my daughter doesn't want to marry her, they would still take the 50 shekels fine, but they wouldn't do the, the, then the marriage wouldn't go ahead, okay? So she could still opt out. Can you see now how, again, in, in the light of 2017, you take this puzzle piece out of its original story, and you put it in the light of our modern-day society, and it goes, oh, this looks so bad. But when you put it back in its place, in the story, in the culture, in the context, can you see now how this is actually a good law? It's actually a good law. And so I'll just, I told you this before, but I'll put it up there on the PowerPoint and, and just so you can read it and so it just sinks in. Everywhere we find laws in the Bible that seem to be harsh towards women, it's actually just a case of ancient Middle Eastern culture being harsh towards women and then God making laws to protect women and mitigate evil within that context. And now I want to prove it to you, okay? Because some of you might be sitting there and you might be going, okay, Chris is doing a, a fantastic job of warping and twisting and, and, and pushing things around and making them look good. But Chris, you can't convince me that that's what those passages actually mean. Because when I look at them, they just seem too bad to my modern eyes and ears. Right? Like, so Chris, you're doing a good job of pulling and twisting and making them look good. But actually, I can see right through it. If I read these passages, I know that, that God must not love women. Okay? All we've got to do then, the same thing that we've been doing message after message in this series, which is, if you want to see, if I'm telling the truth, then we've got to see, does this puzzle piece, the way I've explained it to you, fit the overall picture and storyline of the Bible? So if we want to see if I'm getting the tone right, if I'm getting the understanding right of these laws, we need to go back to the overall storyline of the Bible and say, what does the storyline of the Bible say? What does God say about women? Why, if we go back to the beginning... Why and how did God create women? Did God create women to be inferior? And can we see that at the creation so that these laws make sense that God sees them as inferior and God made women to be inferior? Or are we going to see that God made women to be equal and then sin broke everything and then it makes sense that God would have to make these laws to protect women within that brokenness? Okay? We have to look at the overall storyline. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and let's go back and see what the Bible teaches if God created men and women 
to be uh, equal or if he created women to be inferior. All right? So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And again, I've talked about this before, but many people, because of our English use of the word help or helper, we look at this verse and we go, see, ah, there it is. God made women to be helpers, and that's why we see in the rest of the Old Testament, they're inferior, they're like servants, because they're the helpers. The husband and the man is supposed to be like the chief, and the woman is just his, his servant and his helper. That's how God created things. But the only reason anybody could ever think that about this passage is because of how we, in modern-day English, use the word help or helper. The Hebrew word there translated helper does not in any way, in any way, show inferiority or servanthood or anything. In fact, the word is used a bunch of times in the Old Testament, and pretty much almost every time it's used, it's used of God. Okay? And I could show you many examples. Let me just show you one. Psalm 70, verse 5. David said this about God, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help. That word help there is the exact word for Eve being Adam's helper. And nobody thinks, based on Psalm 70, or a dozen other places in the Old Testament where it's repeatedly used of God, that God is our servant, or that we're sitting at the side of the pool, sipping while he helps us and serves us. Nobody thinks that. So this word, if it's used of God, clearly cannot mean inferior in any sense of the word, or serving in any sense of the word. It, it cannot mean that, okay? Now, if we go back to Genesis 2, I want to focus in on something else there, fit for him. That phrase, I will make him a helper, fit for him. What does that phrase mean, fit for him, okay? And what it means is a perfect complement, and literally it means that corresponds to him or is his equal. And I'm going to show you this in the context of the passage. Because the whole point of Genesis 2 is God is going to, is God has made animals, he's made Adam, and then after Adam he makes animals and he makes woman, and the whole point of this passage is to show that animals are inferior and the woman is not, and that's why she's a perfect fit for Adam. Let's read the whole passage, all right? So um, verse 19. So first, verse 18, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now it's like, it seems like there's a change of topic. He's talking about Adam's alone, and he doesn't have a helper fit for him. And now all of a sudden he's talking about animals, okay? So he says, uh, now out of the ground, and that's important, animals were made out of the ground. It's very important where animals are made from and where woman is made from. We'll see that contrast as we go through this little passage here. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So notice, it starts off by telling us Adam is alone and there's no helper fit for him. Then it has this weird piece about animals. And then again, there's no helper fit for him. What's happening here? It's a contrast. Moses is setting up a contrast, okay? Adam is not alone in the garden in terms of there's no living creatures around him. He is surrounded by animals, okay? And so there's a certain amount of joy or pleasure, I guess, some people can get from animals. Um, um, you know, I, and some of you get, do that. I don't know how you get pleasure. My, my daughter's hamster bit me on the thumb last week, and I've been asking her every day pretty much since if I can shoot it with my pellet gun, okay? Um, my day will come. I'm going to wear her down. But anyway, um, I know that some of you get pleasure. You, you hold your little pussy cat and your puppy dogs, and you, you pet them, and you clean up after them. You take them for walks and all that sort of stuff. So there's some pleasure you can get out of a pet. And I can, you can go to the zoo, and there's some pleasure you can get out of looking at the animals. I do enjoy that. 
And, uh, and so there's, there's that. There's a certain amount of pleasure we can get from animals. But ultimately, the point is, Adam is surrounded by animals, and it's not enough. He's surrounded by animals, and it is not enough. He is still alone because none of them is fit for him. They're all inferior to him. That's the point. And you can't have your loneliness, you can't have that, those needs met inside of you without a complement who's your match. So you can't fill it with an animal. So that's the whole point of this passage is God has to make someone for Adam, not a something, something that's above animals that is his equal. That's the whole point. So uh, we keep reading. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Okay, so first of all, recall that animals were made from dust. Woman is made from the rib, which means she's made of the same stuff as man. The whole point to an ancient Hebrew thinker who's hearing this or reading it or whatever is that she's the same stuff. She's not inferior. She's the same stuff. The animals were out of the dust. She's made of the same stuff. Okay? It's also important to an ancient Hebrew thinker. She's not made out of a bone from his foot. That would make her inferior, like he would be above her. She's also not made from his head, which obviously would kill him, uh, but also would show that she was superior. Okay? She's not made from the foot. She's not made from the head. She's made from the rib. To an ancient Hebrew thinker, they're side by side. They're made from the same stuff. They perfectly complement each other. They're equals. Now, that doesn't mean they're the same. Equal doesn't mean the same. Clearly, uh, men and women are different. And I know in our culture today, the big push is to say there is no genders. Men and women are the same. That's ridiculous. I have four kids. All of them, by the time they were one, nobody ever had to teach them. They knew the difference between men and women. Okay? Men and women are certainly different. Physiologically, emotionally, the way our brains work, all sorts of stuff. We are certainly different. It's a complement. And that's why one plus one comes together to be a whole, is we're different, but we're equal. There's no inferiority. There's no hierarchy here in this in this. Uh, creation account. The woman is made from the rib. She's made from the same stuff. She's not an animal. She is Adam's equal. You say, well, then how come in the rest of the Old Testament, so this is what we see in the creation account, how come in the rest of the Old Testament then do we see women? It seems like in every story, story after story and law after law, the woman is the inferior. You don't see a law about moms selling their sons, but you do see one of a father selling their daughters. How come in the rest of the Old Testament do they seem inferior? Okay. Well, and the answer is again, the Bible is a story. It tells us the story of history. It's a true story. The Bible does not leave us in the dark about this. People take these passages out and they go, see, God doesn't like women. They don't read the story because the very next chapter, chapter 3, tells us why women end up on the, getting the, the rough end of the stick in the rest of the Old Testament. And the answer is not because it was part of God's plan. The answer is because sin broke everything. So in Adam and Eve's sin in chapter 3, and then God comes and he tells them the effects of their sins. The first effect is death. Death was never supposed to happen to human beings. That wasn't God's plan. God doesn't like death. God doesn't like pain. God doesn't like suffering. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to reverse those things, okay? But it's not just death that happened when sin came into the earth. Another thing came in, and it has to do with the relationship between men and women. And we see it when God speaks to Eve in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now people look at that and they say, see, God wanted men to rule over women. Exact opposite. Read the story. 
This is the result of sin. This is exactly what God didn't want to have happen. It's because of sin that it happened, which means that this is another one of those things that when Jesus came to die on the cross, he was dying to reverse this. Everything in the curse is something God hates and that Jesus undoes. Which is why when you get to the new, and by the way, and, and it's not because God was doing this as a punishment to women. This is God explaining what would happen because he knows how he made men and he knows how he made women. And he knew at, with the way he had wired men that once sin came into a, a, a man's nature, many, that men would, have a, a, would automatically have a desire, power hungry, and to dominate. And he knew that once sin came into a woman's nature, she would become like a victim in many cases. And so he's just telling them, I told you not to do it because I knew death would come. And this is another thing that'll come. It'll bung up everything in male-female relations. I made you to be different but equal. But now, because of the way I've wired men, they're going to want to dominate. And that's exactly what we see the rest of the Old Testament. Now, and if we follow the story to its end, we come after Jesus, we'll see that Paul clearly says that Jesus reversed this. Okay? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. And again, the point is, some people love to take that verse out of context nowadays, and, and liberal Christians will do this sometimes, and they'll say, see, there's no genders. There is gender. Male and female are still different, and in marriage, it's man and woman, okay? That's it. That's how the Bible explains it. The point is that there's no inequality they're different but equal. In Christ, there is no male or female. Jesus does not say to a woman, oh, sorry, you can't, if I'm going to tell you something through the man. He doesn't do that at all. There is no male or female with him. We're all equal in Jesus. Amen? So that's the storyline of the Bible. That's how God made it. Sin broke it, and then Jesus restores it. So now you can see in the Old Testament, what I'm telling you about the laws perfectly fits with the storyline of the Bible. He didn't make women to be inferior. So now when you see these places throughout the Old Testament, you've got to constantly go back to that. As you're reading your Old Testament, your devotions, and you see passage after passage where you go, that's messed up. And God says, amen. It is messed up. That's not how I wanted it. It's broken. And these laws that are in there are not encouraging or creating the brokenness. They're protecting women within the brokenness. Does that make sense? I hope that it makes some sense because I worked awfully hard to get there just now. <laughs> And the same is true of polygamy. And now let's just finish this by talking a little bit about polygamy because it's everywhere. And people look at, and, and that's one of the big things. They say, Chris, I still just don't buy what you're selling here this morning because the polygamy. I mean, David is a man after God's own heart. He marries multiple wives, and it doesn't seem like God does anything to him. And Solomon marries a bunch, and Jacob the patriarch does it. It just seems like that's just an awful thing. How can God use men like this? How come God doesn't punish men like this? And on and on and on and on. And it just seems to be everywhere in the Old Testament. We just think, okay, clearly God doesn't think highly of uh, women. Well, there's an important Bible principle you have to understand. And that goes for this entire series. Just because the Bible records that something happened doesn't mean that the Bible condones it. Okay, that's really important. The Bible gives us a history of, of, of the people of God, the Israelites, in the Old Testament and it just, it just gives it to us in all the grossness of it. There's no glossing over the details. There is lots of stuff in the Old Testament that God goes, yuck, along with us. Just because God records it doesn't mean God condones it. And that includes David. David was messed up in many different ways. There are lots of things. He was a man after God's own heart, yes. And there are lots of things that David did that we should never do. And the reason they're in the Bible is to warn us not to do them. Okay? 
And so, for example, when King David and King Solomon married multiple wives, here's something that a lot of people don't read because they just look at things out of context. They never actually read the whole Old Testament for themselves. Is when David and Solomon married multiple wives, they were directly disobeying the direct command of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God talks to Moses well in advance before the Israelites ever have a king. And he says, uh, when you guys are settled in the land, the people are going to ask for a king, and that's okay. And then he gives them a list of things. Your kings are not allowed to do this, and they are supposed to do this. Okay? And let's just read what he says in there. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14, God says to Moses, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he goes through a list of things that kings are supposed to do and not supposed to do. We'll just, for the purposes of this message, we'll just skip ahead to verse 17. And he shall what? Not. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay? When King David, if you would just read the Old Testament itself, it would tell you that when King David and King Solomon married all these wives, they were directly disobeying God. God did not condone what they were doing in the least. In fact, 1 Kings 11.4 explicitly tells us that the reason Solomon fell away from God was because of his polygamy. Look at this. 1 Kings 11, verses 3 to 4. For Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And what? His wives turned away his heart. The Bible tells us it was his polygamy that messed them up. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Okay? So then the objection comes, well, if God was against polygamy, why didn't he punish those guys? Okay? Why didn't he punish them? Well, I got a number of things to say about that. First of all, he did punish them. You ever pay attention to David's family and what happened to it and all the stress he felt? I mean, you read about David's family. Again, there's there's things you copy about David, his prayer life, his love for God, his desire to do right, and there's things you don't copy, and that is nothing he did in his family you should copy. He was a horrible husband and a horrible dad. A couple of his sons, I mean, his grew up to be uh, murderers. One of his sons tried to take over the whole kingdom. Sol I mean, there's the perversity and the assault, one son, son to a daughter. Solomon is the, is the best of the bunch, and he turns out to be a huge polygamist and falls away from God at the end of his life. David's whole family was one big walking disaster, and David went through tons of pain in his life because of his family. Tons of pain. You read the story of David, and how often is he crying or in trouble because of one of his kids? It's a lot. So you say, God didn't punish him for his polygamy? He did punish him. He suffered because of his family. The Bible doesn't condone what David did. But here's the second thing. Let's talk about a second thing, though. You say, well, why didn't God just strike him down? Okay? Because God is merciful. Amen. I mean, some of us, we read the Old Testament and go, why didn't God strike them down? And God goes, why don't I strike you down? Am I not right? You say, well, that polygamy was so bad. We talked about, we went through the Conquer series in fall. You want to talk about bad in our culture right now? And let's forget about people outside the church. And by the way, I'm thankful many men in our church are and have been working through it, which is amazing. This isn't a condemning piece in this message. This is just the truth. When people say, why didn't God strike them down like those bad polygamists? But if, imagine what God would do if he struck down every Christian male in North America right now who is, who is addicted to pornography. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen if he did that. Church attendance would go way down. Because <laughs> we'd have dead men everywhere. Right? Yes. That's just a sad truth. Fact is, God is merciful. That's why he didn't strike David and Solomon and Jacob down. He works with us in our sin. 
And it was part of a broken culture. Now, there's another thing I should tell you because some people are still going, you know what? I just think God could have done more against polygamy. Like, I just felt like he could have put the brakes on more. He could have talked about it more. He could have been more. Let me tell you something else. I think, and many Christian scholars think, that one of the reasons God didn't put hard brakes on polygamy in Israelite society has to do again with women being married. Um, See, the thing you have to remember is in that many cultures, and it almost is certainly true of ancient Middle Eastern culture, is that there were, would have been more women alive than men. And the reason for that is, uh, well, a whole host of reasons, because of wars and things like that, which men would always be the ones fighting in in those days that more men died. But also, it's just been true throughout history. This is actually true. They've actually done studies, is that men throughout history die more often because of stupid causes than women do. It's just true. <laughs> it's actually true. They've actually done studies. I've actually read this, but... You, you go through a list of very dumb ways to die, and men die that way much more often than women do, okay? So it's just true. Now, in some societies today, because of advances in technology and sex-selective abortion, we do have societies in some places now where men outnumber uh, women, but oftentimes throughout history, it was the women who outnumbered the men. And uh, there are a number of Christian uh, thinkers who believe one of the reasons God didn't uh, put a hard break on polygamy, even though he didn't condone it and obviously told the kings not to do it, is because what do you do in a society that's a land-based economy where women can't be cared for unless they're married? And now you have a surplus of women, okay? You have a whole chunk of people here who cannot be cared for. And so it's a distinct possibility. We don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say it. It's a distinct possibility. It's a theory. It's a hypothesis. But it's certainly a possibility that one of the reasons God didn't just put a hard break to it is because in a broken system, in a, in a sin-broken world, it was just another way for some of these women to get married who otherwise could not have and be, and be cared for, okay? But God did not condone polygamy. And again, if we go back to the beginning, you always got to go back to the beginning. What does it say in the beginning? What's God's, so what's the storyline, the whole storyline? And if we look at the beginning and if we look at the New Testament, the New Testament is clear, one man and one woman. And if we go back to the beginning in creation, that's how God created marriage, Genesis 2:24. Therefore, a man, singular, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. Everything that comes after that in the Old Testament is a result of the sin. Is, is a result of the brokenness. God made it one man, one woman. Sin comes and breaks it up. It was never God's intention for men to marry more than one woman. All right? And so now I want to finish this message with, with a positive, a very positive passage. Because so often people, they focus and they attack, and, and in our devotions we have doubts. We look at some of these passages about a man selling his daughter. We look at passages, you know, about, you know, victims of assault and, and all the stories of polygamy, and we just go, ugh, like, man, it just seems like women are not treated, that they're not viewed uh, very well in the Old Testament. Well, did you know that right within the Old Testament, there are just flashes of brilliance where God says, I want to show you what I think of women. And one of those passages is Proverbs 31. Okay, this is right smack dab in the heart of the Old Testament. And in this passage, we see how God views women. Not how the sin-broken culture of that time viewed women. We see how God viewed women. And I want to just read you a couple of, of excerpts to finish this message. Proverbs 31, verse 10, it says, An excellent wife who can find. All right? And I've, I actually found a good one, so that's good. But anyway, um, she is far more precious than jewels. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She ri rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. 
Now, verse 16, look at this. She considers a field and buys it. She's involved in real estate, okay? Now, remember, this is in a culture where women couldn't even own land. So in this passage, she would have been doing it, doing it most likely in her husband's name or whatever, or maybe by Solomon's time, some things have changed. We don't know. But the point is, God sees them as capable of doing this, okay? She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. She's involved in real estate, okay? Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength. God does not view them as the weaker sex. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. So she's involved in business, okay? She's a successful business person. Now, I, sometimes I think maybe women read Proverbs 31, they almost feel guilty. So I just want to tell you something here. The point of this passage is not that every woman has to be a superwoman, that they have to be super mom and super business person and successful real estate and all these different things in Proverbs 31. The point is not that every woman has to do all of these things. The point is God is saying, this is how I view women. They're not inferior to men. This is how God views them. He says they're every bit his equal. That's the only way they can compliment him. That he can lose his loneliness is not by being married to an inferior creature, it's being married to an equal creature. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. And if we skip ahead to verses 28 and 31, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husbands also, and he praises her. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Is that not an amazing passage to find right in the heart of the Old Testament? This is how God, the rest of the places where you see, and it kind of looks icky, you have to remember, this is part of a sin-broken world, and God is putting in protections for women. But if you look at the beginning, and you look at the New Testament, and you look at the storyline of the Bible, and then you see these flashes right in the heart of the Old Testament, you see all along, that God created women, he, he cherishes them, and he sees them as no less. In God's eyes, a woman is, is not inferior. There's no hierarchy between men and women. They're equal complements. So you say, what are we doing with this, with this message going forward? Well, first of all, sometimes truth just needs to be proclaimed, and that truth just needs to be proclaimed over men and women to understand how the Bible views us both. But second of all, I hope this gives you some confidence as you read these other passages, you can get back into the Old Testament. Some of you have been avoiding the Old Testament for years. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You can go to the Old Testament and you can be confident as you read it and you can be confident that God is good as you read it. And third of all, I hope it starts to give you some stuff that as you're online or you're talking to people at school or at work or in your family, that actually we have very good reasons to say that this book is good and that God is good. Amen? You can bow. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and I just want to pray for you. Thank you, Father, that you are good. I pray that these truths about men and women, Lord, would infect those of us who are married, Lord, that it would saturate our married lives, that we would treat each other with respect and dignity, Lord, and that between the genders and between the sexes, Lord, there would be that kind of mutual affirmation and encouragement here in this church. Father, I pray that you would give us a desire to read your word. I pray that the Old Testament would come alive to us like never before, that this summer we would eat your word, that we would eat your word in the Old Testament and be built up as a church and as people and as families. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.